Hey everyone, welcome back. How are you doing, Ven? I'm doing well. How about Oh wait, actually, um <laughs> That was a little abrupt. Sorry, I got excited. But I <laughs> forgot to tell you earlier that I actually got my second dose of the vaccine um a few days ago. Oh nice. <laughs> how, yeah. how are you feeling after? I'm feeling pretty well, actually. Um, Mm -hmm. I know, like, people have a lot of symptoms usually after it, so I honestly got scared. I was like, oh, is it working? (laughs) Because why am I not feeling anything? But I did feel a little bit of fatigue and some body aches, so. Yeah. Um, But I'm mostly just feeling really happy and free. Yeah. Yeah, I I think I got my second dose maybe, like, a few weeks ago, and I definitely had a little bit more symptoms (laughs) than that, but... Regardless, it was such a relief to just get that out of the way and, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so other than that, how are you? Uh, I've been pretty good. Um, do you know what? Actually, I got to go to my first bonfire Ooh, of the summer. Where and um, how and explain the deeds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were just celebrating my friend's birthday and we did a little bonfire for Aww. her. And I am such a sucker for bonfires. So... It was just so happy because that means that summer is officially coming. Yes. Um. I love that. That's awesome. I've been to a lot of bonfires and I've kind of like made my own like one time, but um, (laughs) it's definitely a really nice and exciting feeling that summer's close. Yes, exactly. (laughs) All right. So let's get started because we actually have quite a bit to cover today. Yeah. Let's do it. Why don't you go ahead and introduce the topic? Sure thing. Okay, so today we're going to be discussing how LGBTQI individuals experience the U.S. criminal legal system. So some of the big questions that we're going to be exploring today are, why are LGBTQI individuals overrepresented in the criminal legal system? What kinds of health impacts do incarcerated LGBTQI individuals experience? And what is the Prison Rape Elimination Act, or PREA, and why is it relevant to discuss? Right, exactly. And to help us dig into all of that, we met with Bradley Brockman, who is a civil rights attorney and assistant professor at Brown University School of Public Health. He has focused his career on the healthcare issues and challenges facing incarcerated populations, and specifically LGBTQI incarcerated populations. He recently authored two publications called Emerging Best Practices for the Management and Treatment of Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, Questioning, and Intersex Youth in Juvenile Justice Settings, and Emerging Best Practices for the Management and Treatment of Incarcerated Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, and Intersex Adults. So let's get into this. I'm Bhavna. And I'm Vendela. And this is Women's Health Incarcerated. So, Professor Brockman, before we start, I actually wanted to ask, what is the proper acronym to use when we're discussing this topic? Thank you for that question. I think it's critical, first of all, to understand who your audience is. As you mentioned in the introduction, I have two guidebooks on emerging best practices for the management and treatment of LGBTQI youth in juvenile justice settings and emergency best practices for incarcerated LGBTI, no Q, adults. 
So, to clarify what Professor Brockman is saying even further, the acronym LGBTQI stands for Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, Queer or Questioning, and Intersex. And in these guidelines that Professor Brockman wrote, the Q specifically stands for questioning. And I think we should actually go more into why that is and why Professor Brockman only uses questioning when referring to youth. Yeah, so when we were speaking to Professor Brockman, he mentioned that these guidelines were written for correctional administrators in places like jails and prisons. Right. And so a large focus of theirs was to take into account the vulnerabilities of the LGBTQI population in that environment. Mm -hmm. So what I mean by that is really just to make sure that the language they're using is providing safety and security. What's critical to remember is that it doesn't matter how you identify. It's how you were perceived, both by the administrators and by your fellow residents or whatever category you were in. So it doesn't matter if you're a super straight man, but if you're 95 pounds, thin, feminine, and not very strong, it doesn't matter that you're not because you're vulnerable. So a term like queer in correctional facilities isn't necessarily doing that. Like, it isn't necessarily providing that sense of safety and security, and it can actually be quite harmful because of the way that other people are using that word. And for instance, we don't use the term queer because it's still a pejorative term, and it can still be used in a negative, hateful way. I also want to take a second to highlight the fact that Even though many individuals in LGBTQI communities choose to reclaim the term queer, it's not universally accepted, and it can still be an offensive term. I think it really just depends on an individual's preference for how they want to identify. And in terms of why questioning is only used in reference to youth, my understanding is that Many youth do identify as questioning, and the same isn't necessarily seen in adult populations. Exactly. And we'll be following that language throughout this episode. So whenever we use the acronym Q, like in LGBTQI, the Q will stand for questioning. And one more term you may hear from us is gender nonconforming, which refers to individuals who don't follow gender stereotypes. Okay, so now that we've gone through some of the terminology, let's just hang on for a second. Let's take a pause here because I actually wanted to talk about something that's been on my mind as we were researching for this episode and putting it all together. Mm -hmm. What's up? So when we look at these acronyms, specifically with LGBTQI, I feel like that's pretty broad in the people that it encompasses. Yeah, I actually... Sorry, I I just wanted to say, yeah, I agree with that. It almost feels like we're like lumping all these different people and their experiences together under one umbrella. And yeah, obviously it's important to talk about the LGBTQI community as a whole because, you know, there's some experiences that definitely impact everyone in the community and they're definitely worth noting. Yes, definitely. Even though neither of us are part of this community, I just feel like a lot of the struggles and experiences um, that people who are LGBTQI have very much differ based on the exactly, individual. Exactly, right. Like, even when we talk about the gender binary later on, it just makes me that much more aware that the experiences and the needs are very different, for example, for people who are gender minorities versus sexual minorities. Yeah, and then and then we add all these other identities like race and yeah. it just makes all these experiences 
that much more different. Yes, exactly. But I do still think that it's important to be able to lay this groundwork that we're trying to do with this episode, you know, so that we can get deeper into those nuances and complexities later on. Yeah, no, I I definitely agree with that. It's just something that I wanted to talk about real quick because it was just something I was thinking about. Yeah, I got you. Um, (laughs) And in terms of our listeners, just to give y'all a heads up, when we start bringing in statistics, the acronyms that we use are going to vary based on the specific people that we're talking about. So for example, some studies are specifically about LGBT populations and some are only about LGB populations. So, you know, just be aware of that. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay, so let's actually start getting into that nitty gritty with one of our main questions. Why are LGBTQI individuals overrepresented in the criminal legal system? We can learn a lot about the overall makeup of LGBTQI youth and LGBTI adults by understanding what pulls youth into a system that is so disproportionately impacting sexual minority youth, so LGBTQI youth. So When we sat down with Professor Brockman, a lot of our conversation was centered on the experiences of youth. So that's who we'll be centering throughout this episode as well. So because of the, the very much statistically increased chances that if you have any criminal justice involvement as a youth, your chances of not completing high school are very, very high, and your chances of being involved with the criminal justice system as an adult also go much, much higher than they would otherwise. So there's an organization called the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and it works to develop a brighter future for children who are at risk of poverty, poor education, health outcomes, etc. So some of their work is actually focused on the criminal legal system involvement of youth, and they released a report on LGBT youth in the juvenile justice system. So a few year, around the same time, a little bit later, in a survey of um, 1,400 detained youth, but at seven facilities across the country, 20% self-identified as LGBTQ or gender non-conforming, and 85% identified as youth of color. And that's when the Andy Casey Foundation, which is one of the top foundations in the country, focused on youth in criminal justice involvement. So these survey results tell us two things. One is that LGBT youth are overrepresented in the criminal legal system because while they only make up 7-8% to of the general population, 20% of youth in the juvenile justice system identified as being LGBT. And the second thing that this survey shows us is that youth of color are disproportionately affected because 85% of those LGBT youth in the juvenile justice system were people of color. A key piece of this to understand is that, again, sexual minority youth, including lesbian, gay, and bisexual identified youth, and youth who identified as straight but reported some same-sex attraction, were two to three times more likely than heterosexual youth to report prior episodes of detention of one year or more. Wow. I want to dig into that more because... What's startling to me from what you just said is that youth who identified as straight but reported some same-sex attraction were also, what, two to three times more likely to have a history of detention. 
Why do you think that is? Is that because of homophobia as well as the criminalization of behaviors associated with those identities? What do you think that speaks to? Well, it's certainly from the criminalization of their identities, but there's a root cause that we need to touch on first, which explains why there's actually a higher exposure to the criminal justice system at an earlier age and why the numbers are so much higher. Yeah. The keys to understand, let me just frame this a little differently. Sure. Key to understanding the root cause of the extraordinarily high percentage of LGBTQI youth was because of family rejection and homelessness. And those are directly related to each other. LGBTQI youth are vulnerable to facing disapproval and even complete rejection by their families. This may force youth into homelessness or the foster care system, lead them to be more likely to be charged with status offenses, and can lead to worse health outcomes. LGBT youth comprise 20 to 40% of all homeless youth, particularly in the big cities that are the magnets for runaway LGBT youth. And again, youth of color are overrepresented. In another survey we found that was taken on homeless youth in New York City, the results showed that among LGB youth, 44% identified as being Black and 20% as Hispanic. And among transgender homeless youth, 62% reported being Black and 20% as Hispanic. Few services for LGBT homeless youth are culturally competent. There are high levels of discrimination and assault when these kids are seeking services, and as a result, there is a higher need for them to resort to survival crimes, meaning a much higher risk of criminal justice involvement. What do I mean by survival crimes? It's drug dealing. It is sexual services, um, prostitution. And as we know, these actions are considered criminal and result in involvement with the criminal legal system, even though it's often behavior that's engaged in in order to just survive. And sometimes youth are actually forced into it, In fact, the U.S. National Coalition for the Homeless found that of the homeless youth who identified as being LGBT, 58.7% of them were exploited through prostitution. So homelessness, which is often due to family rejection, can be one of the greatest predictors of juvenile justice system involvement for LGBT youth. But another part of that overrepresentation that we see of this population is that they are more likely to be charged with status offenses, such as for behavior that's considered being ungovernable. So basically what happens is when families, along with you know, some family court judges, they view certain behaviors of children who do not conform with traditional sexual orientations or gender identities, they view those behaviors as quote-unquote acting out or being unruly, which can lead to punishment. Right, and it can also affect someone's health. For example, we see higher rates of suicide, depression, and drug use reported for LGB youth facing family rejection. But LGB young adults who experienced high levels of family rejection during adolescence were more likely to have attempted suicide at an 840% higher rate, to have reported higher levels of depression by about six times the amount, and to have used um, illegal drugs three and a half times higher than youth who reported low or no family rejection. And beyond family rejection, harassment and rejection in schools and communities as well can lead to overrepresentation of LGBTQI youth in the criminal legal system. Yeah, like 
For example, verbal and physical harassment can cause youth to become disengaged or even drop out, and this may lead them to being charged with truancy and placed in the juvenile justice system. So all these factors are important to consider because many youth involved with the system are set up for involvement in adulthood as well. Now, let's get into our second question. What kinds of health impacts do all of these factors have on LGBTQI youth? So to move then to the question of health and the challenges that are presented, I've already described children coming into the system with much higher rates of problematic health profiles, of much higher rates of mental illness, STIs, um, higher rates of addiction, of substance use, of homelessness, which leads to all these other psychological conditions and challenges. You know, so we've been talking a lot about high rates of rejection and harassment that LGBTQI youth often face. But another factor to underscore is the concept of punishment. But in a pediatric study, lesbian, gay, and bisexual youth in school and justice systems were punished for conduct that their heterosexual peers were not punished for. And when they, when sexual minority and non-sexual minority youth were punished for the same conduct, sexual minority youth were consistently punished more harshly. And why do you think that is? Because of inbuilt um, homophobia, inbuilt fear of sexual minorities, inbuilt mm. fear of the other. You yeah. know, a, a child who may be wearing a dress, but in the, the mindset of the person looking at them represents a deviance. Mm -hmm. These are all part of the package that go with either being identified as a sexual minority or identifying as one. So the experiences that many LGBTQI youth face, both prior to any system involvement as well as during, obviously have immense health impacts. You know, this is in the context of kids who are educationally behind, um, need special ed services and have an egregiously much higher rate of traumatic experience, sexual, emotional abuse, injuries, including um, traumatic brain injuries. So we're talking about a population that has a particularly poor health profile, mentally, physically, in every different way. And so um, those require special attention, special care. While youth are in the juvenile justice system, they're also vulnerable to experiencing higher rates of sexual victimization by peers, and this can add to their trauma and exacerbate any poor health conditions. The other piece that's also startling on several levels is that rates of sexual victimization for youth who identify as gay and bisexual um, were significantly higher when compared to their heterosexual peers. So, Bobs, I know you did a little bit more um, research into this, but yeah. what kinds of stats did you find regarding this issue of rates of sexual victimization being higher for gay and bisexual youth than for those who are heterosexual? Yeah, so a study that was conducted in 2013 by the Bureau of Justice Statistics mm -hmm. found that sexual minority youth are nearly twice as likely to experience sexual victimization in juvenile facilities. Wow. And to get even more specific than that, 
they were seven times as likely to be victimized by another youth. The more startling statistic is that lesbian, gay, bisexual youth were almost as likely as heterosexual youth to report sexual victimization by staff. And a 2012 study found that 7.8% of heterosexual youth versus 7.5% of LGB youth reported instances of sexual victimization by staff. That's almost an equivalent number. Meaning that we have a serious challenge that we face regardless of the sexual identity of the individual. But to my understanding, there actually is a mandate across institutions that juvenile facilities should be providing a therapeutic environment. Yeah, but clearly it's not always practiced. But there's a mandate, a recognition that children are particularly vulnerable. Brain development doesn't end, particularly for men, until the age of 24, 25, 26. These kids are coming in with, they have been forced onto the streets. They have been forced into survival crimes. They have been forced into shelters. Their education is behind. They're traumatized. Um, It's essential that that be understood, that these facts be understood by the administrators, by the policy makers overseeing these institutions, it's imperative that this need be understood up front. And now on to our third question. What is PRIA and why is it relevant? So I know that PRIA stands for the Prison Rape Elimination Act of 2003. That's right. But I'm not familiar with the details of what it actually is. Yeah, don't worry. I actually did a bit of research into that, so I can go ahead and explain it. Awesome. So basically, PRIA codified the right of incarcerated people to be protected from sexual abuse and harassment, Mm. and then it required that the standards to accomplish this be drafted up. And, um, you know, we have under PRIA, uh, the Prison Rape Elimination Act of 2003, it was created for and in response to the overwhelming culture of sexual abuse, sexual harassment that exists in virtually all detention facilities, whether for adults or youth. And PRIA standards even state that correctional officers and staff have a duty to adhere to and protect these individuals, right? Exactly. But something else, though, that I think is important to recognize here is the shortcomings of PRIA. (laughs) Which isn't really that surprising that there would be some. (laughs) Unfortunately, yes. Sometimes these obligations to protect can actually be misused by staff, either intentionally or unintentionally. What do you what do you mean by that? Well, staff can sometimes misinterpret casual signs of affection like hugging or talking closely, or even when LGBT incarcerated individuals spend a lot of time together, 
they can misinterpret that as signs of sexual abuse, which Mm. can then lead these individuals to be investigated and even placed in solitary confinement. Mm -hmm. And then according to Professor Brockman's publications, some homophobic or transphobic staff can purposely target these individuals through these pre-investigations. Wow, that's that's pretty scary. I know. But even despite these very relevant concerns, from what I know about Priya, it still does have some beneficial value, right? Especially regarding housing? Critical to determining the housing that would be best suited for the individual was a requirement under Priya that the individual's preference was included in making that decision. Because don't PRIA standards require that housing decisions for incarcerated transgender and intersex individuals be made on a case-by-case basis and seriously consider the preferences of the particular individual? Yeah, that's right. And this was an extremely important ruling. But again, this is another case of a decent policy getting overturned because in 2018, this ruling was essentially reversed by the Trump administration at the federal level when they adopted a policy that required transgender and intersex individuals be assigned to facilities based on their sex assigned at birth. Gotcha. That being said, I do think it's important to note that this was a policy change at the federal level, meaning state facilities are still encouraged to stick with PREA standards. Right. But I do want to dig into the impacts of that policy change a bit more because, you know, even when you think about how our incarceration system as a whole functions, when you're incarcerated, you're either put into a men's facility or a woman's facility. So that to me clearly shows how the system follows a gender binary. Yeah, and obviously not everyone falls into this binary. And even though there is a policy under PREA that says housing should be determined on a case-by-case basis, there aren't really any alternative options for where individuals who don't identify with this gender binary are housed. Mm -hmm. So it's really important to consider the impacts that all of this would have on gender minority individuals who are incarcerated because where they're housed plays a crucial role on their health. And... One of the challenges that we face in either facility, either youth facilities or adult facilities, is how do we engender enough trust and legitimize trust that is based in fact so that the individuals can be honest and open about what they perceive as their own vulnerabilities, what they know to be their own challenges. Um, It's critical in, say, adult facilities because... If individuals are not open about their history of sexual violence, of their history of of rape or of just sexual abuse, and they just keep quiet about it, and they are then assigned in a way that does not take into account their vulnerability, you're setting them up for a continuation of what happened before. And we face that all the time. And when you think about health, obviously feeling safe plays a huge role in that as well. Right. But it it just makes me wonder if people aren't housed in facilities that take into account their gender identity, Mm -hmm. how is that going to create a safe and secure environment for individuals? Yeah, exactly. And I feel like resolving this issue even a little would require not only a change in the system, but a shift in society overall in Mm -hmm. how we interact with and create a sense of safety for gender non-binary folks. Similarly, for transgender individuals, we see this pretty regularly. 
that a trans woman may have difficulty being accepted by women in a women's facility. And which just it just brings up another layer and level of how do we deal with this? The challenge is that we have a huge learning and growth curve nationally to trans acceptance, to trans understanding, even if we don't move to acceptance. And we see that played out in various ways in these settings. So when we spoke to Professor Brockman, something he also mentioned was about his experiences working with correctional officers when creating these emerging best practices publications. Yeah, he really did stress the concept of professionalism and respect. So, you know, putting aside any personal biases or judgments in order to do your job. So that although you may have your own points of view about gay marriage or transgender individuals, based on your church or own cultural views, as a professional, you have a job to do and you leave those feelings at the door. Now, that's easier said than done, I know. And it's easier in some cultural settings to do it. Something interesting to point out is how some facilities have been working on this change. Like Houston, Texas, for example, has one of the largest jails in the country, And this facility was the first one to adopt a comprehensive LGBT series of policies for the incarcerated population. And how they did that was by first enacting a policy that protected LGBTQI staff from harassment and other discrimination. And that was a key piece of this. How can you ask in a conservative state like Texas, even in a progressive part of Texas like Houston, individuals to show respect for the individuals in their charge when you're not asking them to show the same respect to their peers. So that was a key first step. And I think that that is a good indication of where we need to start in general. We can talk all we want about the population, but if we don't have somehow have an established overall culture of respect, we are not going to accomplish what we need. And Professor Brockman, what, in your opinion, should people, especially people who are not directly part of the LGBTQI community, keep in mind in order to be effective allies in this work? And in addition to that, what would you say to people who are on the outside? What do you think they should be doing to learn more about and discuss and advocate for these issues? Well... In some respects, you're asking the wrong person because I think what's essential is not just about LGBTQI individuals in criminal justice settings. Mm -hmm. It's about anybody who's involved in those places. And we need a much higher understanding and sense of the over-incarceration that we uh, have forced on our country as a direct function of not providing the health and human services that we need in the community. Mm-hmm. You know, the country has traditionally not provided health care, including mental health care or substance use care for low-income individuals, period. Right. Medicaid, which is still the old Medicaid, which is still in effect in 12, 13 states, including the most egregious states or the states with the most egregious records for incarceration only covers 
low-income individuals who are pregnant women and they're really only interested in the fetus, children and their families, but the families are an appendage mm -hmm. and the disabled. Right. If you don't fit into one of those categories, you are not entitled to low-income health coverage. Also, even if you are covered in one of those categories, which doesn't cover the majority of individuals, you know, 22 and over mm -hmm. um, in any jurisdiction, Medicaid is not required in those jurisdictions to cover mental health treatment, nor is it required to cover substance use treatment. What does that mean? It means that you cannot get treatment for mental illness and substance use issues except in a safety net program and or through your emergency room. So what does that mean? It means self-medication if you have a mm -hmm. mental health problem. What does it mean? It means that you are much more likely to be engaged in activities that are deemed criminal or that are criminalized, and that will bring you into the um, hands of the criminal justice system. We see this in a really egregious manner with our LGBTQI populations, but it is the same driver for the bulk of people who are incarcerated, mm -hmm. right. especially when we understand that this incarceration disparity is merely a measure of the health disparity that we see for Black, Latino, and other minority populations of color. So the same health problems that they face, which are exacerbated by their color, their race, their poverty, even is worsened by their sexual identity, by who they are as individuals. So yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. What people can do is to become aware of this. We have a huge task to alert people to what's going on. It is not known that um, we have less than 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's prisoners, and that that's a function of their health by and large and their color and their poverty. Okay, so let's just recap some of the main points from this episode. One, LGBTQI individuals, and even within that, LGBTQI people of color are overrepresented in the incarceration system. And this is a pattern seen from youth all the way throughout adulthood. Oftentimes, youth are vulnerable to experience things like homelessness and harassment, which can lead to a reliance on survival crimes and other criminalized behaviors that can ultimately lead to entanglement with the system. 2. LGBTQI individuals can often experience a lot of trauma both before incarceration and during incarceration. In addition, we see higher rates of suicide, depression, drug use, and STIs among this population. Culturally competent services are absolutely critical both in communities as well as inside juvenile detention facilities. And three, policies like the Prison Rape Elimination Act of 2003 do exist to protect incarcerated people from sexual abuse and harassment, as well as allow incarcerated individuals to have a preference in which facilities they want to be housed. However, a Trump administration policy in 2018 overturned this ruling for federal prisons, meaning that in these prisons, incarcerated individuals are required to be assigned to a facility based on their assigned sex at birth. That being said, this doesn't apply to state prisons, which are still very much encouraged to comply with PREA standards. All right, so 
I'm sure y'all know the drill by now. Let's get this Q&A started. So, Professor Brockman, before we let you go, we actually have a few icebreaker questions for you. Oh, <laughs> good. <laughs> so, um, the first question we have is, if you could be anywhere in the world right now, where would you be? I think I would be in Mexico. Ooh. I would probably be in Mexico mm-hmm. um, on the Pacific coast. Um, or in Mexico City, both of them, two of my favorite places anywhere, <laughs> yeah. um, and relaxing or just, uh, yeah. So, yeah, so I would be someplace, not necessarily warm, although that would be part of it, but um, <laughs> a place that's alive and engaging. And, yeah, um, I uh, love that. Just, yeah. Yeah, I think I would also definitely elect to be in a warmer climate if I had the choice. Um, <laughs> yes, and one that's more alive as well. <laughs> so for a second question, if you could give a piece of advice to your younger self, what would it be? It would be to not to try so hard. Yes. It would be to accept, be more accepting of who you are and what you are, uh, notwithstanding how you perceive you're judged by others, yeah, um, including members of your own family. It would be to um, just really have confidence and knowledge that you're about as yours. You're perfect just as you are and that you can't be perfect unless you're imperfect. So mm-hmm. you are. Yeah. Wow. I really love that. You can't be perfect unless you're imperfect. That's, it's really amazing. Yeah. That was very well said. Um, so for our last question, what's a skill or talent that you've always wanted to work on, but you just haven't had the time or opportunity to yet? Oh, mm, probably, well, I would say more work in the healing arts. So Mm. to really work in, um, becoming knowledgeable in herbal, uh, how we can heal from the earth. Yeah, yeah. So herbology, essential oils, which I'm beginning to dabble in, actually. Oh, wow. Um, And I just wish I had more time to dive into that because I know the gifts that are there because I've experienced them. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's so cool. And it's definitely something that I've been trying to get more into this past year while I've been in between school. And it's so cool. There's definitely so much power there. (laughs) Yeah. I wouldn't say I've done anything along those lines myself or really researched into it, but it's definitely something that I've been considering exploring too. (laughs) Well, that's all the questions that we have for you, Professor Brockman. Thank you so, so much for joining us today. We learned so much from you. So thank you. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode. Next time, we're meeting with somebody to gain more insight into what re-entry is like immediately after being released. Until then. Women's Health Incarcerated can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. To view our transcripts, learn more information about the intersection between the incarceration system and healthcare, or find different ways that you could get involved, please visit www.winkthemovement.org. That's www.whincthemovement.org.